0: And welcome into the Kill Coin Conversation. This particular visit is with Bob Costas. We always joke, somebody who needs no introduction, and then we read their whole resume and where they've worked and what awards they've won. I think with Bob, we just leave it at that. He needs no introduction. But the focus here, and this is not to get Bob on and his take on the Blues power play or the Cardinals cleanup hitter, it's real specific. And it's something that's just sort of been on my brain about good interviews, and you see people walking around with their headphones in, and they're listening to podcasts or downloading long-form interviews, and even though the world's changing and media's changing, it's still about conversation, and it's still about great interviews, great subjects, and I thought Bob was the perfect person to talk about that. His friendship with Larry King, they used to challenge each other in terms of their interview skills, Uh, even David Letterman, a non-traditional interviewer. But his particular style, getting Bob's take on that and some fun anecdotes about how he first ended up on the late show with Letterman, trying to get Jack Nicholson to do a halftime interview on the NBA during the NBA Finals. And all of us in TV or radio, you feel like you've been asked to do a tough assignment like, oh, I don't really want to do it, but the bosses are big on this. How about Bob's NBC bosses saying, go ask Jack Nicholson, sitting courtside there at a." Happened to be a Bulls-Blazers NBA Finals in Chicago. How about being asked to go ask Jack Nicholson to come on the set at halftime to yuck it up? Jack Nicholson doesn't do TV interviews. Think about that. Never. And Bob was sent. It's a very funny story how he was sent on that assignment. Uh, Also, his worst interview that he can recall from his time at Later, how it was tremendously painful, yet Joe Torre called him from the road hotel room with the Cardinals to say he thought it was hilarious. So some great anecdotes with Bob and the whole backstory backdrop to this interview is about people conducting great interviews. In fact, after it was over, probably my fault for not drawing this out, but after we were done recording the interview, Bob shared a story about David Letterman being a fan of Bob's radio show, Costas Coast to Coast, which for decades was on Sunday night's You'd hear it on Camel X in St. Louis, but long form, the Mickey Mantles of the world, and you'd spend an hour with these guests. But apparently Letterman had been a fan of that, listening to it, and mentioned to his NBC bosses, hey, you know, Costas does uh, these long form interviews, and I know he's a sports guy, but I bet he could interview anybody. And Bob thinks and believes that that was the genesis of him getting asked to do the TV show later, which, uh, as he points out, still lives on on YouTube. You can find some great interviews. I need to. In fact, I didn't do this yet. Bob said there's a YouTube video when Letterman was the guest on Later. But nonetheless, it's all about interview style. Whether you're Mike Wallace or Larry King or Oprah Winfrey, it's very different. But the conversation today, as it were, as it turns out, is about conversation, as strange as that sounds. And the KillCoin Conversation each week is brought to you by our friends at Appliance Discounters. You can find all of their items online at discounters.com. They have the lowest prices. They've got the GE rebates in the market for an appliance. Make sure you check them out in person all around the St. Louis area or online, discounters.com. Also, Triad Bank, the St. Louis-based bank that started here in 2005. Triadbanking.com, their website, located on Clayton Road in Frontenac, just west of Lindbergh. Right there by the uh, Lindbergh Highway 40 exit, easy to get to, and it's a St. Louis-based bank. Jim Regna, the CEO, and his team ready to help you and your business do more business. Also, Marie de Senior Living, the beautiful campus in West County, located at the corner of Clayton and Weidman Road. Hop online, take a virtual tour, mariedevilla.com. And we are joined by Bob Costas, a man who needs no introduction. And Bob, uh, I know you get a lot of interview requests, but... I was thinking about this lately and it's when Larry King died just not only his style, his legacy as an interviewer, but then also I started thinking randomly about just the interview topic everyone says radio is dead and then they say, well TV's dying yet interviews conversations, dialogue is is still what's booming whether it's Joe Rogan or Bill Simmons and I know you've been guest on many and you could host your own if you wanted to but I'm fascinated by the art of the interview. And then I thought, of oh, Larry King and you guys, did you have like a, a challenge, an interview challenge, where you could bring out a random guest and sort of see what your skill set was at interviewing that person? Was it more than once? Because I remember the George Pataki
1: meatloaf exchange, but were there more than one of those? You have your New York governors mixed up. It was actually Mario Cuomo ah. who preceded George Pataki. George Pataki actually defeated Mario Cuomo, who was running for re-election, but the same idea. It was when I was hosting the later program on NBC, late 80s through the mid-90s, and Larry and I had differing interview styles, but we'd been longtime friends because of Larry's connection to sports. In fact, briefly for a couple of years, he was part of the pregame show for NBC's football coverage, and I'd guested with him on both television and his mutual radio show many times. And at one point he said, I can interview anybody and it doesn't even matter. Don't even need to be prepared. He almost prided himself on not reading the book and not doing extensive uh, preparation. Just do it off the top of my head. I said, OK, let's have an interview challenge. Now, we said this on the air. We said this on the later program. Next time you're on, I'm going to bring a mystery guest out from around that corner and you will have to interview him or her off the top of your head. And you do the same, and I have to accept my end of the challenge. And he brought Mario Cuomo, the governor of New York. And there were several questions that occurred to me, uh, not only about his political circumstances, but he had been a ball player. He was uh, in the Pirates chain in the minor leagues, signed by the same scout, by the way, or at least scouted by the same guy who signed Mickey Mantle, Tom Greenwade. Uh, and Cuomo always enjoyed telling that story. And subsequent to that, uh, he shows up as a prominent contributor to the Ken Burns baseball series, but that hadn't happened yet. So Cuomo comes out and I'm able to do a competent interview with Cuomo. I line up Meatloaf as the guy that Larry will have to interview. Larry has no idea who Meatloaf is. And it isn't like, Larry, may I introduce you to Meatloaf? Meatloaf just comes through the door and sits down in the chair that I have vacated. And now, Larry first has to figure out who the bleep meatloaf is. And finally, and he does a smart thing. He says, thank you, mystery guest. Just for the record, what is your name? And he says, well, meatloaf. He says, shall I call you meat or Mr. Loaf? So actually, this is off to a very good start. And then he begins to quiz him as if he was on what's my line or I've got a secret wearing a mask, you know, is what is your line of work? Does it involve sports? Does it involve music, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. He narrows it down, but we each had only about twelve minutes—half of a uh, of a half-hour television program minus the commercials—so eleven or twelve minutes. And it wasn't until about the tenth minute that he realized that Meatloaf was a rock star, and he got him to uh, to name a couple of his most famous songs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But he was entirely lost. But here's the thing about Larry. He was unabashed about the whole thing. He was perfectly good with the whole thing. He he found it entertaining. He wasn't embarrassed by it.
0: And you guys obviously were fans of the interview, the the art of the interview, but very different styles. And and for you, you've done so many things. I've always gotten the sense that the later program, and I guess to the same extent, Coast to Coast, you really like the kind of longer format instead of a tightly produced two-minute piece on a pregame show. Am I wrong there where you enjoy kind of just getting in-depth?
1: Yeah, I've always enjoyed the long-form interview. That's what later was, uh, 22 minutes minus the commercials and the opening and closing. But if you had a guest whose body of work was significant enough or if you were just clicking with that guest, you could say, hey, will you come back tomorrow night? They always said yes. And then, amazingly, we were wearing exactly the same clothes the next night because we just let the tape roll. So that... That kind of open-ended interview is enjoyable. Um, You feel less frustration. You're less rushed. But I could do whatever the circumstance called for. Uh, When people talk about, hey, here's my favorite, my list of favorite interviewers. And they'll have Oprah on the same list as Ted Koppel or Larry King or Brian Gumbel. But not only did they all have different styles, they operated under vastly different circumstances. Brian Gumbel, interviewing somebody for four or five minutes, doesn't have time to go down side streets to see if there's anything interesting. He's got to cut to the chase right away, and that clock is always ticking in your head. Ted Koppel was not across from the guest 99% of the time. The guest was on a monitor and usually in some other city, and it was usually a serious topic. One of the advantages that Oprah has always had and Charlie Rose had on PBS and Larry King had on CNN and Mutual Radio was almost unlimited time. So you can let the thing kind of unfold and you can also count upon the comfort level that you've established with the guest, if in fact you have established it, in which case very often the guest gives it up on his or her own. This is not the same thing as the Mike Wallace or Steve Croft interrogation style on 60 minutes. They all have their place and they're all really worthwhile when they're done capably, but the circumstances are entirely different.
0: And and do you have guests at times where you're, you're so excited they're going to be on, but then, as you mentioned, the willingness or openness, and they're just not giving you anything. You're like, Oh, because people will say great interview. And you could ask great questions, but if the subject doesn't play ball, it could be yeah. a awful interview. I mean, I'm sure there were some, and I don't know if you want to name
1: names, but we're at times where, oh my God, this is brutal. Why are they even here? Well, here's the one that's the perfect example of what you're talking about. And people often think that a combative or challenging interview is the most difficult. Not if you're up to the task. The most difficult is, as you say, Martin, when the interview subject, for whatever reason, is unresponsive. So Jack Palance, the great actor, has won a supporting Oscar uh, award for his role in Billy Crystal's City Slickers. Prior to that, Palance had been a notable Hollywood presence. And I didn't know this at the time, but he had a sincere aversion to interviews. But Billy Crystal and I are friends. So Jack Palance happened to be in New York on a day that we were taping later programs. And Billy Crystal was to be one of my guests, often because I was commuting between New York and St. Louis. We would tape multiple programs in a single day so I could hop on a flight and get back home. So Billy shows up and naturally he's great. He's always great. <clears throat> and he brings Jack with him. And Jack is sitting in the green room watching all this and becoming more and more anxious because he thinks in his own words, oh, Bob, I thought this was three or four minutes like Entertainment Tonight. And Billy is trying to calm him down. Jack, it'll be fine. Bob knows his stuff. No problem. So Jack Palance sits down. And I know that some of your listeners will not have a mental picture. Google the guy, an imposing guy, like six foot four, a head that could go on Mount Rushmore, actual size, you know, a hand like a bear paw. And he sits down. And a general rule of thumb in interviewing is, The quicker and more direct the question, the quicker and more direct the response. But I knew that I had to get him to open up. So the flip side is sometimes true. If you ask an expansive question, you're hoping to get a more expansive answer. So this is how I open. Thanks for staying up later. Our guest, the esteemed actor, Jack Palance. Jack, such a pleasure. You know, one of my favorite movies is the classic Western, Shane. Alan Ladd as the mysterious gunfighter. Van Heflin as the homesteader who befriends him. Gene Arthur as the loyal wife who nonetheless is obviously drawn to Shane. Little Brendan DeWilde as the boy who idolizes both Shane and his dad. And you as Jack Wilson, the bad guy. You're a specter in the film. You don't even show up until the last third of the film, but your presence kind of hangs in the air. And then comes the ultimate gunfight with Shane. If you're in a hotel somewhere, Jack, and Shane pops on at one o'clock in the morning, what do you think? And this is his answer. I think I'd better change the channel. I have no interest in seeing it. And it goes on like this for 22 torturous minutes. There's a little digital clock behind the right shoulder of the guest. I can see it. The guest can't. Normally, those 22 minutes went flying by. Here, it was like sands through the hourglass. It just felt like every second lasted an hour. I remember one of my next questions was, you played Mountain Rivera in Requiem for a Heavyweight, a role previously played by Anthony Quinn. Did you ever compare notes with the great Quinn? Not at all. I didn't see his performance. I'm sure he did not see mine. So now... I say at some point, you know, I'm beginning to feel like Billy Crystal's character in City Slickers. And you may recall, Martin, the scene where Billy and the other tenderfoots are sitting around a campfire and uh, Jack Palance's character is kind of the trail boss. And they're talking about him in disparaging fashion. And Billy doesn't realize until a giant shadow is cast over him that Palance is coming up behind him. And Pounce's line as he looks down at a terrified Billy is, I crap bigger than you, kid. So I say, I'm beginning to feel like Billy in that scene, Jack. And his actual answer was, oh, I wouldn't crap on you, Bob. Maybe on some of your questions, but not on you. So finally, 22 minutes go by. It's just the worst. And we walk off the set. And the set's kind of an was an elevated little cove in the corner of uh, the studio where they do Saturday Night Live, a giant studio, but we're just in a little cubbyhole. So we step off that platform and into the relative darkness of the rest of the studio, at which point he clasps an arm around my shoulder, pulls me into his chest and says, Bob, I gotta tell you a great story about Marilyn Monroe. (laughs) Now? 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 (laughs) Jack, wouldn't it have been a good idea to tell it when we were back there, <laughs> it is, oh, oh, Bob, it was re- incredible. Okay. Uh, now, the show did not air that night. We, we taped them, and they would air the next week. And as it happens, and you know this is true of all players and entertainers, they keep odd hours. The Cardinals are in Cincinnati, and Joe Torre goes back to his hotel room after the game, and he's watching later. The next morning, I get a call from Joe Torre. He says, that was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life, to watch you squirm like that and try and navigate that half hour with Jack Palance. That was the most entertaining thing I've seen in a very long time. Yeah, Joe, entertaining to you, maybe not to me.
0: What you always want to do, the host of a car wreck. Everybody stopped to see it. <laughs> That's right. How about, the, how about the flip side for you as a guest with Carson Letterman? I mean, were you on Carson? Once, well, one time. And then how many Letterman, tons of times guest and or contributor, I guess. How how scripted are those segments?
1: Well, a producer does a pre-interview with you and you line up a few areas where you might have a funny story or it might be an interesting place to go. Of all the talk show hosts that I was on with, Letterman was the one least likely to stick to that script. It bored him and he thought it was inauthentic and not challenging enough. So you had to be on your toes. You know, He might set you up for a few things, but if something else occurred to him, he could come from around the corner with something. So you really had to be on your game to be on with David. And as you said, uh, I was on, you know, sitting down next to him as the guest, I don't know, eight, nine times, but more than that, as a contributor in these sketches that he came up with, uh, elevator races and Uh, On one of the anniversary shows, he staked me out at one New York hospital and, of all people, Vince McMahon at another. And if a baby was born, we were in the maternity wards, if a baby was born during the show, that baby would be anointed, the late night baby, with lifelong benefits that would accrue to someone uh, who had achieved such an honor. And so they kept checking in with us back and forth to see if anything was happening. And that was totally unscripted. And I remember at one point I concluded the report and you always did it because you knew this was what David wanted in mock serious fashion because his whole show, or at least a good portion of it was a send up of the conventions of television. And so I'm doing it like it's a serious report. And I said, Dave, we'll be back with all the pre and postnatal action. <laughs> and he liked that very much. And when it was over, <clears throat> McMahon actually was a baby born at McMahon's hospital but no baby born during that hour or 90 minutes uh, in the hospital I was at. They come back to me for a report and there's like a party scene in, in the ward. So there's balloons, there's cake, all the nurses and the orderlies and some of the doctors are there and I've got a cigar in my hand because they're ready to hand out the cigars that the baby had been born. And I said, well, Dave, no baby yet, but as you see, the party continues apace Meanwhile, just down this hall, the desperate cries of the plaintive cries of desperately ill men and women go unheeded. And they went back to Dave and he's throwing his head back in laughter. And I think it was actually those contributor things that, that kind of cemented my relationship with Dave, uh, who was very kind to me through the years.
0: Uh, and I remember it like yesterday, you're in the hallway and they're. I think, did they, have, did they have dog races in the whole, dog
1: sled? Ele, yeah, dog sled races, elevator races. Um, the elevator races were very popular, and that was early on in his tenure. I think he came on the air in February of 82, following Johnny Carson, and the dog sled races were in March or April of 82. And at that point, he had no idea who I was. In fact, he introduced me as Bob Costa. Uh, they were looking for Marv Albert or Don Cricky or somebody that he thought was more recognizable to the audience to play the sportscaster part. And they were all out of town on assignment. And he called the NBC Sports or somebody from Letterman's staff did. And the woman said, you know, Marv isn't here. Don Cricky isn't here. Dick Enberg's in California. But we got a kid here, Bob Costas. And they said, send him up. And I showed up. He called me Bob Costa, but I did OK. And after that, he knew I was Bob Costa.
0: It had you had you tanked or not been funny or interesting or clever that night, maybe that was it, right? Like, could have been a one and done?
1: Yeah, I don't know if it would have ended my career, but it might have ended my relationship with Letterman before right. it even began. But, you know, I had actually watched David through the years when he was a young stand-up on Carson, and he had a morning show, which was so irreverent and probably ill-suited to 10 o'clock in the morning uh, prior to getting the late-night slot. So. I, I knew what he wanted, and my heart was pounding. I was just hoping that I could deliver it, and luckily I did.
0: And people will say Letterman is a great interviewer, but if you watch him, I mean, it's not David Frost. It's, it's not the Mike Wallace interrogation. Nah. I, I guess the skill set there is that he gets people comfortable. you know. And Howard Stern conducts some really compelling interviews despite some of his you know, reputation, and a lot of it is people allow him to kind of go there and then they'll say something like, yeah, it has to be, and they're very different, the two of them, but it is comfort level maybe as high on the list as the questions you ask.
1: Yeah. I think the comfort level now with this version of Howard Stern is probably greater because people just settle into that couch and it seems open-ended. I was not a big fan of what Howard Stern did when he was first making his name, but I give him tremendous props as an interviewer now uh, he gets great stuff. Uh, he's well-prepared. He asks smart questions. And as you said, he's got the format that allows it to play out well. With Letterman, you're really kind of you know on your toes because it's live to tape in front of a studio audience. And what Dave is masterful at is conducting, when the situation allows it and calls for it, an incisive interview, but also punctuating it with laugh lines. I've always felt that Dave, in addition to remaking late night television, everybody in some sense owes him a debt. Jimmy Kimmel, Conan O'Brien is one of my all time favorites and has a distinctive style of his own. But they all owe David a debt of some kind, Uh, just as Johnny Carson owed Steve Allen uh, a debt for much of what he did. But in addition to that, I think Letterman was is a great broadcaster but people just don't think of it that way. When you think of some of what David did behind that desk, you know, monologue, the monologue was only a way to get him from point A to point B, half dozen jokes. And then he went behind the desk with Leno. He knew that that and stuff like headlines and jaywalking, those were his greatest strengths. So Jay's monologue would last 10, 12 minutes because that's what he did best. But when David every night got behind that desk, he had some story to relate. Something that happened over the weekend at his house in Connecticut or whatever it might be. And sometimes when he ran into a scandal situation, one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen, the way he navigated that and explained what the situation was. And it started out as if it was a joke. And then he laid it all out there, laid his soul bare in what could have been a very humiliating situation. And yet throughout it, as he talked about a serious subject, he punctuated it with lines that got laughs. That's an amazing high wire act. Very, very few people in the history of television could do what David Letterman did nearly as well.
0: And I think one of his most memorable moments is probably one of the most awkward interviews was the Madonna when she wouldn't stop swearing. Clearly she's trying to make headlines or you know go viral before that was even a thing. Mm-hmm. And he basically said, knock it off. Nobody wants to hear that. And then like the audience yeah. ignored, and the ability to say, you know what? I got a huge star here, but I don't, and granted, he was a big star too, but I think kind of speaking for the audience in that moment, just maybe it's all coming down to just having a sense of the moment, but I I remember that as a classic Letterman because who cares what Madonna says? He's going to put her in her place.
1: Well, Letterman excelled when things went off the rails. Cher, who called him an asshole at one point, uh, Cher, Madonna, Uh, Joaquin Phoenix, who was staying in character, somebody who had like renounced acting and was going off to be a recluse or study with the Maharishi or something. And anyone else, that whole thing would tank. But Letterman turned it into gold. Uh, Andy Kaufman came on there and had a a fight, an on-set fight with the wrestler Jerry Lawler. And it spilled off into the hallway and it wasn't staged. And the way Letterman handled that I'm sure he didn't wish for that to happen, at least not every night. But when it did happen, it always turned into gold for David. And it wouldn't for most other people. One of our great sponsors
0: is Appliance Discounters. At Appliance Discounters, they're well aware of all the cannots that the other appliance guys are telling you when you're in need of an appliance right away. At Appliance Discounters, they want to make your life easier, offering a full in-stock, 40,000-square-foot warehouse full of GE appliances. Times are difficult enough Why wait two, three months for that appliance when you can get it in just a couple of days? Lowest price, GE rebates, great service, and in stock only at Appliance Discounters. Shop any of the showrooms or go online. TheApplianceDiscounters.com. As always, our savings are your savings. Do you agree with, I guess I should have asked it first if I was a good interviewer. The, The premise I have is that interviews will always live on, whether it's in your phone or your TV and whether it's Oprah with the Royals or Barbara Walters saying, what kind of tree are you? I mean, I think our whole lifetime we've had entertainment in the form of interviews. So I don't, even though radio is changing yet, I think people still want that intimacy of conversation. I just, it is changing, whether it's the Joe Rogans of the world and the way they're able to go long form. Do you think 20, 30, 40 years from now, and maybe it's an attention span thing, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm, I guess I'm hopeful that people still want significant
1: interviews. Yeah, you know, it's funny when you said Oprah with the Royals and when they were promoting it, I thought she was going to interview George Brett and Hal McRae. So, <laughs> so I was extremely disappointed that that was Fred, not Freddy the case. Freddie Potek refused to Fred, take part. <laughs> Freddie Potek and Dan Quisenberry would have been excellent guests. Um, <laughs> your premise is correct. And I've been reminded of this in a way that's very gratifying. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff on YouTube. But a lot of it, if you're selective, is really interesting. You know, you'll know, you find clips of old television shows, old boxing matches, interesting exchanges. A lot of it comes from, as you said, the talk show genre. And a lot of these old laters are popping up on YouTube. It's been brought to my attention. Uh, dozens and dozens of them, they just pop up randomly. And I will hear from people who are discovering later or rediscovering it on YouTube, and they're very appreciative of what it was. It just had a different metabolism than other shows that were on at that time or any show that's on now. One guest, no studio audience. There were plenty of laughs, but when there were laughs, they were earned laughs, like on the old Tom Snyder Tomorrow Show. When you hear the staff laughing, when you hear the stage manager and the camera people laughing, those are earned laughs. They haven't been primed to crack up at the slightest thing that ordinarily, if you're sitting at home, might bring a smile or a nod. They're primed to crack up, but the uh, the texts are not. So when when you get laughter in that situation, it's laughter that's really been earned um, and later had a, a broad range. You could have Don Rickles one night and Ellie Wiesel, a Nobel Prize winning <clears throat> Holocaust survivor, the next night. Then Mary Tyler Moore is on. Then Smokey Robinson is on. That's just the way it was um and they, it has a second life uh which i appreciate very much was there
0: was there a holy grail was there ever you and your producers saying we got to get so-and-so i mean i yeah. don't i think de niro famously doesn't is it jack nicholson de niro don't do much in terms of interviews
1: at all i guess did you have a couple you chased for years well you just mentioned one de niro has come around and he does do uh the occasional interview with people he has some kind of relationship with But Jack Nicholson had really, I don't know if you call it a policy, but it was just the way he approached this. He felt that he was a movie star and that it made a difference. It's changing now with Netflix and everything else and all the streaming services and um, you can can DVR stuff. It's, It's different now. But he felt that people laid down their money. They went to the movies and they saw him on a big screen if he was to come to them in their living rooms while they're doing something else or in their bed late at night on a small screen, that it diminished that image of him as a movie star. So when you think about it, the only time you ever saw Jack Nicholson on television was sitting courtside at every Laker home game. But apart from that, he never showed up on anything. Didn't even do Johnny Carson the last year when just about everybody was flocking to Johnny, for one more visit before Johnny signed off. He wouldn't do it. And through the years, because I would see him at Lakers games, I would ask him from time to time. We had dinner once with some mutual friends, and he was always very polite, but he explained what his philosophy of it was, which leads me to this. It's 1992, and the Bulls are playing the Trailblazers in the NBA Finals. And all the games, of course, are on primetime on NBC. And it's a bigger deal than it is now. With all due respect to LeBron James and all the great players, with all due respect to the excellent broadcasters on TBS and and Mike Breen and company on ESPN and ABC, it's a different deal. When these games were on in primetime, on NBC, and the promos are on Jerry Seinfeld and Friends and The Tonight Show and David Letterman and The Today Show, Michael Jordan and the Bulls, just a different place in pop culture than anything surrounding the nba today so as it happens nicholson who of course is a huge nba fan is in chicago filming hoffa so he shows up at one of the games at the old chicago stadium and he's got tickets in the front row along one of the baselines and i'm upstairs in the mezzanine hosting the pregame and halftime terry o'neill is the producer Terry says to me with about five minutes to go in the second quarter, hey, do you know Jack Nicholson? "Eh, Well, a little bit. Yeah. He says, go ask him if he'll come on with you at halftime. I said, Terry, this is a fool's errand. I know what Jack's attitude is toward this. He's not going to come on. He says, look, you owe it to us. Take a shot. Go down there and ask him. All right, I say, rolling my eyes. I'll go and do it. So I make my way from. The second level all the way down. And I come up behind Jack and I wait for a timeout. So there's a timeout now with about three minutes to go in the quarter. And I tap him on his right shoulder and his head swivels around. And I swear it reminded me of that look when you first see him in the shining, you know, that those demon eyes. And then he realizes it's me and his face softens and he goes, Oh, hi Bob. And I say, Jack, Just play along. They may actually be watching. I'm supposed to come down here and ask you if you'll be on with me at halftime. And he says verbatim. And you can bleep whatever portion of this you wish to, Martin. He says verbatim. Bobby, Bobby, you're a nice kid. You do good work. How can I put this nicely? No fucking way. So I say, Jack, I will take that then as a no enjoy the rest of the game. Now I got to tear ass all the way back up to the mezzanine to get there in time, you know, wiping off the sweat to get there in time to host the halftime show.
0: The only upside is he didn't have an ax. <laughs> that was correct. Oh, <laughs> correct. Oh, that's great. That's classic. Well, I guess that explained. Well, we'll, we'll never see him do the big sit down. And I don't know where the venues are anymore. Cause it used to be, you, you'd go on a later, you'd go on Larry King. Uh, did you have, and we'll end with this, who your, your influences in, in the interview realm, and maybe even today,
1: that you enjoy what they get out of somebody? You know, there's a guy, this is going to be a curveball. There's a guy somewhere on cable, and I should know what outlet it is, but there are so many of them, named Sam Jones. Not to be, not to be confused with the uh, former Celtic Hall of Famer teammate of Bill Russell, Sam Jones. Different guy. And he's got a show um, shot in black and white, bare bones, and he interviews people from across the spectrum, primarily entertainment people, but not limited to that. Uh, He does an exceptionally good job. And some people have told me that they think it's reminiscent of later in some respects. Um, You know, on our own terms, Oprah is terrific. Larry King's terms were different than other people. I enjoyed him. I wasn't influenced by him. My approach to it was, was different. Uh, I I don't think I ever copied anybody as a sports broadcaster or as an interviewer, but a lot of it, I guess, just kind of seeped in. And in some sense, you're taking mental notes as you're watching stuff and saying that worked, that didn't work, that could work for me. It works for him or her, but it wouldn't work for me. Um, So in that sense, I guess I'm, I'm a product of everything that I've consumed one way or another through the years.
0: Well, Bob, I've enjoyed uh, this interview, but also all of your interviews. I used to listen to Coast to Coast on Sunday night. And again, it was the idea that somebody may have talked 10, 15 minutes, but hey, we'll take a break. We'll come back. And you know, locally, they had live at Shannon's. And anytime the guest would stay on through the break, yeah, it was, it was, it was like this, oh my God, they're, they're going to go longer, which for years before the podcast, we just didn't have that. So good to catch up and uh, hope to see you in person at some point. Martin, thanks a lot. Take care. Boy, I've talked to Bob a lot over the years, interviewed on TV and on radio, but that's the first time I really sort of dug in on a very specific topic. And uh, i got to say, I enjoyed that a great deal. While I would be happy to get his take on sports matters that are out there right now, I just wanted to kind of talk about interviews and interview styles. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did uh, just talking about these particular topics, the Jack Nicholson story alone. The Letterman take, how he first got the gig being on Letterman because Marv Albert, Don Cricky, nobody's available. Uh, Just love hearing those stories. Remember, you can find all of the Killcoin Conversations posted at scoopswithdannymack.com. You can also subscribe, Google, uh, the iTunes, Spotify. That's probably the easiest. Just subscribe and you can get each segment delivered directly to you we are brought to you by triad bank the st louis based bank since 2005 headquartered in frontenac because they're based here because they are started in st louis we're started in st louis they're going to be able to help you get things done around town triadbanking.com or stop by and see them clayton road in frontenac appliance discounters with those four area locations the home to the great ge products you can always check them out at the as always their savings are your savings. And Marie de Villa, senior living for so many years, the home to our great friend Red Shandings, also on the board, part of the ownership group there. Since 1960, Premier Living, it is a beautiful campus with all types of retirement living options there, your own villa, your own condo, assisted care, whatever you are looking for in the retirement years, they have it. MarieDeVilla.com is where you can take that virtual tour. Hey, hope you enjoyed it. The Kilcoin Conversation coming back soon. Talk to you then.